Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, December 11th. I am Aranza Loizaga, and these are today's headlines. After a shootout in and around a kosher market in Jersey City, New Jersey, officials now describing the violence there as a targeted attack. Four people and two gunmen killed in the brazen daytime shooting. Hours after articles of impeachment were delivered against him by House Democrats, President Trump taking the stage at a rally in Pennsylvania saying that the two charges against him, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, are, quote, not even a crime. And the Justice Department's Inspector General testifying to Congress today, saying there was no evidence of political bias in the Russia probe, a claim first made by President Trump and his supporters. This and much more today on U News, recorded live from our news room in Miami. We begin today with the latest on a deadly shootout in New Jersey. That shooting leaving six people dead, including three people inside a kosher market, a police officer and the two shooters who for hours exchanged fire with the cops during hours-long standoff. Nayeli Chavez-Geller is in New Jersey City with all of the details. Nayeli? Good afternoon. As the investigation continues, we have a clear picture of what went on inside the Jewish supermarket, the epicenter of a deadly police shootout that lasted for hours and left a total of six people dead, three civilians, the two suspects and a police officer. At this hour, the suspects have been identified as David Anderson and Francine Graham. Authorities believe they were members of the Black Israelites, a group that has expressed anti-Jewish sentiments. The incident is being investigated as a case of domestic terrorism, and authorities believe that the Jewish store was targeted. Amongst the three other victims inside the store, one of them was an immigrant from Ecuador, and as for the police officer, he's been identified as Joseph Seals, a father of five, who had been with the police department since 2006. However, in spite of this tragic, of all these tragic losses, the focus right now is on the investigation of the shootout that started out in a cemetery located half a mile away from the grocery. Detective Seals was apparently questioning the suspects for a homicide that had occurred over the weekend and got shot. The men then got away in a rented vehicle and entered the kosher grocery and began firing, turning the neighborhood into a war zone with shots lasting for nearly four hours. 46 schools were on lockdown. It's important to mention that two other police officers were also wounded. They have been released from the hospital and that there's a survivor that was inside the grocery store. This person is currently being questioned by police officers. At the moment, this is all the information I have from Jersey City, New Jersey. Now back to you at the studio. Thank you, Najeli, for that report. Meanwhile, today, President Trump signed an executive order to interpret Judaism as a nationality and not just as a religion. The White House thinks the move will help to combat what they see as anti-Semitism on college campuses. But the order would also allow Trump to take further steps to combat anti-Israel sentiments and divestment movements on college campuses by requiring colleges and universities to treat those movements as discriminatory. According to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the Department of Education can withhold federal funding from any college or university that discriminates based on color, race or national origin.
Now to the latest on the impeachment showdown. Now that Democrats have drafted articles of impeachment, here's how the next steps will play out. The House Judiciary Committee will vote to approve them, then the full House will vote on them. That vote is expected to take place before Christmas. If the House votes to impeach, then the Senate will hold a trial presided over by Chief Justice John Roberts. It takes two-thirds of the Senate, or 67 votes, to convict and remove a president from office. At a raucous rally in Pennsylvania last night, President Trump attacked Democrats for the charges leveled against him. They're impeaching me and there are no crimes. This has to be a first in history. They're impeaching me. You know why? Because they want to win an election. And that's the only way they can do it. But Democrats insist Trump committed high crimes and misdemeanors. It's only the fourth time in American history it has come to this. We must be clear. No one, not even the president, is above the law. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nettler unveiled two articles of impeachment. The first, abuse of power. Trump solicited interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, to influence the 2020 United States presidential election to his advantage. The second charge, obstruction of Congress. The unprecedented, categorical and indiscriminate defiance of subpoenas and request for testimony without lawful cause or excuse. Our president holds the ultimate public trust. When he betrays that trust and puts himself before a country, he endangers the Constitution, he endangers our democracy, and he endangers our national security. Republicans defending Trump to the hilt. The Democrats called those who supported Donald Trump deplorables. And now they're trying to disqualify their votes. Democrats still cannot get over the fact that the president won the election and they lost. But Democrats say if they don't act now, they allow Trump to jeopardize the integrity of the next election. If we did not hold him accountable, he would continue to undermine our election. Nothing less is at stake than the central point of our democracy, a free and fair election. Meanwhile, in the Senate, the Judiciary Committee grilling the Justice Department's Inspector General about his reporting to the FBI's investigation of the Trump campaign and the Russia probe. Lorraine Cassidy has been monitoring the he and this hearing, and she joins us with the latest information. Lorraine. Well, Aranza, Michael Horowitz standing by his findings that the investigation was not political and the FBI did have a valid reason for opening it, but admitting that there were mistakes made and the FBI withheld crucial information from the court that approves their surveillance of an individual. Justice Department's Inspector General Michael Horowitz appearing today before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Our team conducted over 170 interviews involving more than 100 witnesses. After the release of his long-awaited report concluding that the FBI was justified in opening an investigation into the Trump campaign and Russia's influence on the 2016 election. On Tuesday, the Attorney General William Barr disputing the findings, telling MSNBC the FBI acted in bad faith. The president's administration has been dominated by this investigation into what turns out to be completely baseless. But Horowitz standing by his reports, answering questions regarding his investigation and his conclusions. In opening the investigation was in compliance with those policies. 
Nevertheless, saying he and his team identified several irregularities with the process, specifically related to the special court that approves wiretaps under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, a law that is typically used to target foreign spies and terrorists, adding the FBI was advised of possible inaccuracies with Steele's dossier, but the FBI never shared that information with the court. Department lawyers and the court should have been given complete and accurate information so they could have meaningfully evaluated probable cause before authorizing the surveillance of a U.S. person associated with a presidential campaign. The committee chair airing his grievances and worries that Carter Page from the Trump campaign continued to be surveilled, despite no concluding evidence proved he was a Russian spy. Instead of stopping, they keep going. And instead of telling the court the, court the truth, what they're required to do, they lie to the court. A few irregularities. How would you like this to happen in your life? Senator Lindsey Graham urged an audit of the FISA system and the process of how to start a counterintelligence investigation, saying that not doing so is a threat to not only politicians in the future, but also civilians. Back to you, Aranza. Lorraine, thank you very much. And for more on the Inspector General's testimony, let's go to Stephen Harper. He is an attorney and author. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you've been keeping a comprehensive timeline of the Trump-Russia investigation for the website JustSecurity.org. What stands out for you from the IG's report and today's hearings as well? Well, there are three things that I think are really important. One, what's happening today with Horowitz has zero to do with the articles of impeachment against Donald Trump. Um, what they're complaining about, what Republicans are complaining about with respect to the Horowitz report, has to do with the origins of the investigation, that is, were they valid, and it has to do with the subsequent uh, uh, warrant that was obtained to surveil Car Carter Page. So that's the first point. It's got nothing to do with impeachment. Number two, on the critical question of whether there was an adequate basis for the FBI to open a counterintelligence investigation in the first place, place back in July of 2016, Horowitz found the answer was yes. And he also found that there was no political bias or improper motive that went into those decisions. On the third issue, and this is a completely separate issue, uh, the surveillance warrant, warrant relating to Carter Page wasn't even issued until three months later, and it wasn't issued until after Carter Page had left the uh, Trump campaign. So picking up on something that you just said, Horowitz's report found the start of the FBI Russia probe was legally justified and unbiased, but cites significant errors in surveillance warrants. Can you elaborate on those errors? Sure, sure. What, what he was essentially saying was that there are different specific procedures and protocols that the FBI should follow uh, before you get a warrant from a very special court, which is what the FISA court is, authorizing electronic surveillance. And um, in this case, there were problems that Horowitz identified relating to errors and omissions, some of which related to whether there was uh, reliable information in what's referred to as the Steele dossier and whether those errors were uh, subsequently corrected because there, there was an initial warrant and then there were three subsequent renewals. And one of the concerns is that there were errors there were errors arguably in the or insufficient um, 
analysis, if you will, going into the initial warrant, and that some of those were per perpetu perpetuated in subsequent warrants. So, Mr. Harper, and, and I, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was today, and, and he makes a legitimate point, which is that whenever you have the government uh, uh, trying to get a warrant to listen to people's phone conversations, you better make sure that you, if you're the government, that you dot all the I's and cross all the T's, because we, we don't want to be interfering with personal privacy rights. But the important, the really critical point is that it has nothing to do with, again, impeachment, and it has nothing to do with whether the opening of the counterintelligence investigation in the first place was proper or justified and everything else. And that's why, in your earlier report, you referred to Bill Barr. That's why Bill Barr is out uh, you know, trying to lay some mattresses for the proposition that maybe there's still something here, when in fact, at least to this point, Horowitz has found there's absolutely nothing there at all in terms of what Trump has been compl complaining about. Uh, and claiming for the last couple of years. And they keep on using the word spying instead of surveilling, right? So I have a question. Is this a you know pattern for the Trump administration, you know, attacking the investigators when the outcome doesn't fit the president's narrative, like what Barr did, for instance? Oh, sure. I mean, that's that's what's been happening from the very beginning. You know, from the moment that uh, Special Counsel, Counsel Mueller was appointed, uh, Barr has been, I I'm sorry, uh, Trump has been looking for ways to attack him. There were very there were frivolous objections relating to his alleged conflicts regarding what a Trump country club that he resigned from. And what we've had since then is an endless series of attacks on the investigators who have been investigating him. And that is what, in fact, prompted Horowitz to even do this report in the first place. And this is just the fourth in a continuing series that all began with Trump's attacks. We've had reports on McCabe. We've had reports from the inspector general on on those famous text messages between, uh, and we saw them again in the hearing with Lindsey Graham, between Lisa Page and Peter Stroke, um, and we saw it in the, um, in the McCoy, in, 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 with respect to Comey. These are all the result of a persistent effort that Trump has, has become a Trump theme, which is attack the investigators because he doesn't like what they're investigating. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, Stephen Harper, author and also attorney. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Happy to do it. Thank you. So despite the announcement of articles of impeachment against President Trump, Democratic leaders and the White House were able to agree on the USMCA trade deal Tuesday. This comes after, you know, U.S., Canada and Mexico trade negotiators signed a modified version of NAFTA at the ceremony in Mexico City. Janet Rodriguez has all the details. Janet. Aranza, this comes after one year, over a year of negotiation. The U.S., Canada and Mexico had ratified the agreement back last November of uh, 2018. And it's now that changes were made and now that all three countries will have to vote again on those changes before the agreement goes into effect. And the White House is calling it the biggest and best trade agreement in the world. And the Democrats, on the other hand, are celebrating because after a year they were able to get in some provisions that they had been fighting for, including and strengthening the labor enforcement, especially when it comes to Mexico. They will have to be able to uh, say and show that they have the standards that the U.S. follows also the um, 
uh, manufacturers here in the U.S., auto manufacturers will get a better deal, and so will get the farmers in the Midwest that will have bigger access to the market. So these are some of the changes. However, even though yesterday we saw a big ceremonial signing down in Mexico, here in the U.S., uh, we will have to wait just a little longer for the agreement to be ratified in the Senate that will not be done probably until February. Here is why. We will not be doing USMCA in the Senate between now and the end of next week. That'll have to come up in all likelihood right after the trial is finished in the Senate. And we'll be working with the House to make sure that the various uh, time uh, requirements are, are met. From my perspective, it's not as good as it, uh, I had hoped, but uh, we'll have to take a look at the whole, the whole package. Not as good as he had hoped, saying McConnell basically distancing himself from what the White House had to say, that this was the biggest and better, best deal that they could ever get. He knows that the Republicans had to give some concessions to the Democrats when it comes to the deal. And uh, now we have to wait until next year. Mexico and Canada uh, uh, also have to have their Congresses ratify the new agreement before all of them sign together once again and the president here at the White House signs one last time and the agreement could go into effect possibly in March. Back to you. Janet, thank you very much. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said this was a victory for U.S. workers. I really appreciate it, Janet. So she's only 16 years old and is taking the world by storm. Greta Thunberg, who's become a symbol for youth and climate change, is Time Magazine's 2019 Person of the Year. Thunberg, the youngest person to ever be given that honor. The accolade goes to the person or persons who most influenced the news and the world during the past year. Time Editor-in-Chief Edward Felsenthal says she became the biggest voice on the biggest issue facing the planet this year, coming from essentially nowhere to lead a worldwide movement. And continuing her mission to get governments and citizens the world over wake up to the disaster looming because of man-made carbon release. At today's UN climate session in Madrid, Thunberg emphasized that in global climate change discourse, the science is still being ignored and that it is vital to keep warming temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius. She highlighted that even at one degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Let's listen. And why is it so important to stay below 1.5 degrees? Because even at one degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Because that is what the United Science calls for to avoid destabilizing the climate so that we have the best possible chance to avoid setting off irreversible chain reactions, such as melting glaciers, polar ice, and thawing Arctic permafrost. Every fraction of a degree matters. 
So Thunberg also said that businesses and political leaders are misleading the public by holding negotiations that are not leading to real action against warming temperatures. And echoing Thunberg's statements, a new report says rising temperatures and shrinking snow and ice cover in the Arctic are endangering habitats, fisheries and local cultures. According to findings released Tuesday by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the Arctic region is warming more than twice as fast as the rest of the planet. The past two years saw record low levels of sea ice floating on the Bering Sea during winter. And it's being called the Blue New Deal. That's what Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren is calling her new plan to address climate change and pollution in the world's oceans. Warren wants to phase out existing offshore drilling and fast-track permits for offshore renewable energy. The senator from Massachusetts has released several other plans to fight climate change. In September, she called for 100% clean energy. And big-name celebrities and politicians such as Cher and former Vice President Joe Biden have jumped into an online Twitter frenzy, kicked off after Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo made remarks critical of the gun lobby and legislators for failing to act on gun control. And as Pedro Rojas explains, the sparks began to fly during an Acevedo press conference following the fatal shooting of one of his officers. The Senate and Mitch McConnell. The chief of the Houston Police Department, Art Acevedo, is in the middle of a controversy after openly criticizing both Republican senators from Texas for what he considered to be lack of action to pass gun control. His remarks were made while authorities were transporting from the morgue the body of Sergeant Christopher Brewster, who was killed over the weekend when responding to a domestic violence call. Make up your minds. Whose side are you on? Gun manufacturers, the gun lobby, or the children are getting gunned down in this country every single day. The chief was referring to the slow process to approve the Violence Against Women's Act. The suspect who shot the officer is 25-year-old Arturo Solis, who has a long criminal record and was carrying two weapons. Meanwhile, the Houston Police Officers Union has condemned the words of Acevedo and described them as offensive and inappropriate. Senator Ted Cruz issued the following statement. It is unfortunate that the chief of police of Houston it seems more focused on trying to advance his own political ambitions than on supporting the brave men and women of HPD. The fact is that the killer was a criminal whom federal law already prohibited from having a gun, instead of playing politics with tragedy. You brag about every piece of legislation you care about. Start caring about cops, children, and women, and everyday gun violence. The father of the alleged killer revealed that his son has suffered mental illness since his childhood. I took him to his psychiatric appointments when he was a child and provided him with medicine. But as an adult, he stopped taking his meds, Roberto Solis says. The viewing of the body of Sergeant Christopher Brewster is scheduled for today, Wednesday, and the funeral service will take place on Thursday. Chief Acevedo also says that he wouldn't mind losing his job for his remarks and also questioned Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell and the National Rifle Association. In McAllen, Texas, Pedro Rojas, U News.
On Tuesday, the Trump administration finalized its ban on U.S. commercial flights to nine separate Cuban destinations, leaving flights to Havana as the only option for those looking to travel to the embattled island. The U.S. government says the ban is in retaliation for the Cuban government's support of Venezuela's Nicolás Maduro. There is no end date on the Trump-imposed ban, and critics say this will only hurt Cuban people on both sides of the Florida Straits, as Cuba continues to grab with an economic crisis brought on in part by U.S. sanctions. In Colombia, tensions spilled over the streets of Bogota on Tuesday as protesters faced off with riot police during a march to mark Human Rights Day. Police used tear gas to disperse protesters who stood firm against armored vehicles. It was the latest demonstration after weeks of protests against the government of Iván Duque, putting pressure on Duque's proposed tax reform, which lowers duties on businesses but puts other citizens at risk, according to the protesters. And in Chile, a demonstration to mark Human Rights Day left police once again facing up with protesters on the streets of Santiago on Tuesday. Police responded with tear gas and water cannons as protesters threw rocks at the officers. The unrest originally began over hiking metro fares and at times the protest unraveled into violent confrontations, looting and arson as well. But demonstrators say for the most part their movement has been peaceful as they push for efforts to reduce inequality in the country. Meanwhile, almost 40 people remain missing after a Chilean military plane disappeared en route to Antarctica. Search and rescue efforts are continuing with support from countries in the region as everyone holds out hope for the best. David Romo has more. This runway in Antarctica is where a C-130 Hercules plane from the Chilean Air Force was expected to land Monday afternoon, but the plane never arrived. After an hour and 20 minutes, the control tower lost contact with the pilot and alarms went off at the Punta Arenas base in southern Chile. Bueno, siendo ya la 00 con 41 minutos, hemos decretado por procedimiento de TESFA. ¿Qué significa esta condición? That means that the plane already ran out of fuel and had to make an emergency landing or some other action due to the lack of fuel. 38 people were on board. 32 from the Air Force, 3 from the Army, and 3 civilians. One of them was Ignacio Parada, a civil engineer student from the University of Magallan, who was the first student to reach the Antarctica on a trip endorsed by the Chilean Armed Forces. The plane had supposedly fallen into one of the most difficult sailing areas in the Strait of Magallan. For this aeronautical expert, the possibility of an emergency landing at sea is not unlikely. We have to take into account that there were five-meter-high waves. Therefore, it's difficult situation. It's very risky, but that plane is designed to withstand such conditions. Certainly, there is a possibility. For the crew's relatives, the search has been painful. I thank all my neighbors for their concern, and especially the Air Force, that is doing everything humanly possible to find him, alive or not. They are doing everything possible. Brazilian, Argentinian and Uruguayan planes joined the two F-5 planes from the Chilean Air Force that are searching the waters. Chilean President Sebastián Piñera suspended his trip to Argentina's presidential inauguration and is leading the search and rescue efforts from the capital in Santiago. 
Reporting by Alejandro Chavez, this is David Romo, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your news covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. And we are back. Listen to this. Employees at one of the largest commercial real estate firms in the Northeast recently got a huge surprise. Some very generous bonuses. Nearly 200 employees will share $10 million that average out to about 50,000 bucks per employee. Workers were overwhelmed when they saw their checks. St. John Properties founder and chairman Edward St. John made the announcement at the annual holiday celebration in Baltimore on Sunday. And now we head to Iowa, a state in need of thousands of substitute teachers. And the story of one man who turned to his local library for support to fulfill his dream of one day occupying one of those classroom positions. Maridi Morangi has more. It's, 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 it's a lengthy process becomes a substitute teacher. For Waffle Odom, the library has been his second home. I'm, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> I'm telling the truth. He spends months at a desk with one big goal in mind, to become a substitute teacher. It's not a job. It's like a lifestyle. And I just, I just love, love helping p people, kids, and, and just, just assisting and seeing how, what impact I can have on their lives, just like people impacted my life to get there. According to the National Education Association, Iowa has a little more than 9,000 substitutes across the state. It's the highest those numbers have been, but compared to 33,000 teachers, there's still a need for more. That's why I went into it. I, at first I didn't know there was a, a greater need of becoming a substitute teacher, but as I got into it and researched it, I saw that there was a great need of being a substitute and also being a teacher. But last week, Odom got some good news. I want, I want, I want to show this. This is, this is my badge. I'm official sub central substitute teacher. Uh, gave me my license. Watching just someone be able to um, meet a goal that they're trying to meet or um, get a job, all those things are thrilling for us. Um, that's what libraries are all about. The North Liberty Community Library has been pushing to help people get jobs, and Odom noticed how the staff went above and beyond to accommodate him. Most, most of the time you can't use a computer for an hour. They let me use their computers for four, five, six hours at a time. And now that he's certified to teach, Odom considers his dream job a chance to keep helping others. We have people Skyping interviews in, in the meeting rooms, people doing um, career development, uh, meeting to start businesses. I, I think the, the last part of my life, I would like to serve other people in the nursing and teaching. So what I would say to other people, don't give up on your dreams. Maridi Morungi, U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.